Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be reading this morning from verse 24 to the end of verse 30. And as a precursor to put it out there, this is one of those messages where you're going to have to listen up and listen up well. It's going to be a bit like a jigsaw. There's going to be times where you're going to go, where is this going? Hopefully, it will all make sense by the end. I believe it will make sense by the end. So let's pay attention to what we hear from verses 24 to the end of 30 of Mark chapter 7. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Well, Lord, once again, would you speak then to our souls through your word? Would it not be my voice that people hear nor pay attention to this morning? Would it be your voice and may we all then pay attention to your voice? Lord, speak to your heart, speak to our hearts by your grace. For your glory. Amen. In the 2014 season... One of the best players in U.S. college basketball was a young man by the name of Jabari Parker. He played for Duke University. He was an extremely good basketballer. And so in 2014, as the NBA draft approached, everyone was talking about him. And everybody wanted to know, where does he fit in on the draft? Presumably, he's going to be number one. He'll be the first pick because he's by far the best player coming out of college basketball. Well, it was in February of 2014 that Sports Illustrated magazine did an article on Parker. It's a very insightful article. It was entitled The Education of Jabari Parker. And it was insightful because it didn't talk primarily about who he was or how good he was. But it talked in particular about his relationship with his coach, Coach Mike Chavesky. And scenes then like this one are portrayed in the article. September 2007, K-Center. An assistant texted Parker that the coach wanted to see him in the theater where the team studies film. He entered and found Chavesky sitting high above him in the top row. Come on in and have a seat, Chavesky said. You think you're in trouble, don't you? Yeah. Well, this ain't one of those meetings. Sitting side by side, they watched a video of a scrimmage. Chavesky hit pause. Look at your feet, 
he said. They are in the wrong position. Parker nodded. Chavesky stood and demonstrated the correct stance. Moments later, Chavesky stopped the tape again. Look at your hands, he said. They are not ready. I've got to change that, Parker said. On the next sequence, Coach Chavesky zeroed in on Parker's hips. They were turned in the wrong direction. This is about precision, Parker, and doing physical things to create better habits, Chavesky said. It's what the guys I coach in the summer do. Cobry and LeBron and Durant are precise in what they do. After an hour, Chavesky turned off the film. I never realized that I looked that bad, Parker said. Chavesky leaned in closer and looked into Parker's eyes. It's not personal, he told him. It's just the truth. And Parker left the theater energized. It's not personal. It's just the truth. And it can appear at first glance that Coach Chavesky is being harsh or rude or intentionally unhelpful and corrective towards Parker. But in actual fact, he was just trying to help his standout player who he knew could be great. He was seeking to help him and serve him by telling him the truth so that he could grow. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. See, there is no doubt, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your attention, that in verse 27, Jesus says something that certainly takes us by surprise. He says in verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is calling this woman a dog. She comes to him, desperate, kneeling before him, looking for his help because her little girl is tormented by a demon. And yet Jesus talks to her and calls her a dog. And in this statement, is somewhat troubling, is it not? It seems harsh. It seems rude. It seems somewhat out of character for the Savior. And yet what I want you to realize this morning, my friends, is that in all reality, what Jesus is doing here is simply leaning in, looking into this woman's eyes and saying to her, in effect, it's not personal. It's just the truth. He's not seeking to be harsh or critical or rude to her. He's just seeking to tell her the truth. And he's seeking to tell her the truth because he wants to invite and provoke her to faith. He wants to pull her into faith with himself. He's not trying to push her away in this moment. He's trying to pull her in and provoke her to faith. And her response gives us a most wonderful and compelling example of faith. And so if you want a title for this morning's message, it is a compelling example of faith. 
And that's exactly what we have here in chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. See, in the Bible, we have a number of definitions of faith. A number of definitions and a number of exhortations and statements on faith. And yet what we also have is a number of examples of faith. Pictures of faith that the Scriptures placard before our eyes so that we may be provoked by them, so that we may learn from them, so that we seek to imitate them. And this one here is indeed one of the finest in all of Scripture, provoked and invited for by the Savior himself. So I have three points this morning. Number one, a transition and introduction, which takes us from verse 24 through 26. Number two, an interaction between Jesus and the woman, verses 27 to 28. And then a pronouncement and miracle by Jesus, verses 29 and 30. Let's begin why Mark begins. Number one, a transition and introduction. Now, make no mistake, Jesus has just concluded a major confrontation and conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's concluded it. It has all been relating to the nature and source of defilement. It's all to do with this issue of the washing of hands. They're picking on Jesus' disciples because they haven't washed their hands properly. And so Jesus talks to them at length about what really defiles us, what really makes us unclean before the Lord. What is it that cuts us off from the Father? It's not washing of hands. It's not food. But it's nothing to do with what goes into our bodies. It's what comes out of our hearts. That's what defiles us. That's what cuts us off from the Father. And Mark then very intentionally and purposefully places this story immediately after this conflict to show us what happens Next, and it's deliberate. Look at me with me at the first half of verse 30 verse 24. It says, And from there, from the conflict, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you and I read that, and you just think, Oh, that's nice holiday. It just doesn't seem to make much sense. You think, Okay, great, he, he must like the place. I mean, why not? And yet to the original readers and all those observing what has taken place here, the reality that he is now heading towards Tyre and Sidon would be be completely stunning and shocking to them. Because Jesus is now heading to an unclean Gentile area. And the move is deliberate. Jesus has just gone toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the scribes over what makes us unclean. He leaves that conflict and heads immediately into an unclean Gentile territory. It's deliberate. And Mark wants us to know it is deliberate because what Jesus is doing is publicly demonstrating his total disregard for what the religious leaders are saying about defilement. He wants everybody to know that's what they believe about defilement. Well, watch this. I'm going into defiled country. It's deliberate. It is a statement. He is, in effect, applying what he's been teaching about in verses 14 through 23. James Edwards, in his wonderful commentary, which I think is the best commentary probably on Mark if you want to get one, he says this. He says, Tyre and Sodom probably represent the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could ever expect to encounter. 
So Jesus has just gone toe-to-toe with the scribes and Pharisees over the issue of what makes us unclean, what defiles us. He then picks his head up and walks into what would be the Gentile equivalent of Las Vegas. Because he's proven a point. He's making a point. He's making a public statement about what it is that really makes us unclean. It is a public statement, yet it appears that he is going there not for the purpose of public ministry. It's 24b. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. He heads there, but clearly he's not there to attract a crowd. He, he wants to be hidden. See, most likely he's going there for the purpose of rest. If you pay attention over the last few months that we've been studying chapters 6 and 7, Jesus and his disciples have been hanging out for a rest since chapter 6, verses 30 and 31. The disciples have been sent out by Jesus. They've been sent on mission for Jesus. They're coming back exhausted from that. Jesus himself has been in the countryside preaching the gospel, healing people, rebuking demons. We read in chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So he heads over to the other side of the lake for rest, but then comes the feeding of the 5,000. Later that evening, he walks on water. The next day, he heals the sick at Gennesaret. The next day, he ends up going toe-to-toe with the scribes and Pharisees. He is exhausted. Most likely, is heading to Tyre and Sidon for a rest. And yet his popularity goes before him by now, wherever he goes. This rest simply was not possible. He could not be hidden because everybody's heard of Jesus. Everybody's heard of this miracle maker. Ever since chapter 3, where there are people from Tyre and Sidon there in the crowd, they've been telling everybody about him. So as soon as Jesus appears, everybody wants to be with him. And Jesus is okay with that. He would love rest, but he's okay. He's come to seek and save the lost. But more even than that, he has a divine appointment with one Gentile woman. Just like he does in John chapter 4 with the woman from Samaria that he meets at the well. Well, here he has another divine appointment with another woman. And in verse 25, she arrives at the door. It says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And so in she comes. Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's in a Gentile home. And this desperate mother who has heard about Jesus now arrives at the door. She's heard about him, no doubt, from the people that were talked about in chapter 3 that would have been telling everybody about this guy who heals everybody and rebukes demons from people. And this woman is desperate because her little girl is possessed by a demon. She is tormented by a demon. There is no way that she can get this demon out of her child, but she knows and has heard of one who can, and he's in town. 
So she's most likely going from house to house to house, and then she comes to a house, and she recognizes this is him. So she bursts in through the door, and she falls at his feet. Because she's desperate. Because her little girl has a demon inside of her. See, it doesn't detail in this text what this would have been like for the little girl. But if you look at the text prior and post, you can tell what it would be like. Because to be demon-possessed means that you will undergo seizures and moments where you'll be thrown to the ground with foaming and gnashing of teeth. There'll be moments where you'll be screaming and shrieking uncontrollably. And there will be moments then when you would observe your little girl cutting herself and bruising herself, trying to get the demon out. Well, that's what this mum is going through. It's her little girl. She loves her. And yet involuntarily at different times, this Little girl falls to the ground and and screams and shrieks and there's foaming coming out of her mouth and she's no doubt trying to wake her and help her but there's nothing she can do. And this little girl hurts herself trying to get it out. How would you feel as a parent? Knowing there's nothing you could do. And how would you feel as a parent if a guy came into town that you knew could heal her? You'd do what she does, wouldn't you? You would find him. And you would throw yourself before him, pleading with him, if there's any way, please heal my daughter. Well, that's what she does. Mark wants us to see the desperation in this woman's eyes. He wants us to feel it and sense it in the air that she is desperate. But he also wants us to feel the tension in the air caused by the reality of who she is. You look at verse 26. It says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You know, as we come to this verse, we mustn't miss off the specifics, because the specifics are given to us by Mark for a reason. And he wants us to understand the tension that is in the air in this moment because of who this one is. She's a woman. It wasn't right in this culture for women to come bursting through doors and address a rabbi like that. But not just that, she's a Gentile woman. She's unclean. She's unclean before the Lord. She shouldn't be approaching the Savior at all. And not just that, she is a gentle, unclean woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit. There is uncleanliness all around this situation. So we see Jesus as the Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, the clean and holy one, in an unclean home, in an unclean territory, being addressed by an unclean woman who has a, whose daughter has an unclean spirit in her. Uncleanliness is all over this story. James Edwards once again says it this way. He says, Of all the people to approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. 
Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She is a woman, a Gentile, from the infamous pagans on Syrian Phoenicia. Even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this one. And that he must. And yet Mark wants to deliberately paint the picture for us. That's why he's giving us these specific pieces of information of who it is. Yes, she's desperate, but look at who it is. She's a woman. She's a Gentile woman. Her daughter has been possessed by an unclean spirit and she stands before the Son of God himself. Well, the scene then is set for point two, an interaction between Jesus and the woman. Back in Mark chapter 5, we also encounter a story where an individual falls at Jesus' feet and makes a desperate plea for his daughter, Jairus. He's the leader of the synagogue And he makes a desperate plea for his little girl because she's sick and close to death. And so he also runs to Jesus. He throws himself before Jesus and says, Listen, can you help me? My daughter is sick. And Jesus immediately rises up. He goes with him. And by the time they get there, the daughter is dead. So he brings her back to life. And you would assume and hope, well, surely the response then will be the same as it was for Jairus. Nope. The response is very different because something else is needed here. So he says this to her in verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. What happened to Jairus' daughter? Why don't you just go with her and solve this problem? It's a shocking statement, isn't it? In response to this woman's pleading before the Lord, in response to her desperate plea, he tells her a parable and calls her a dog. In response to all that she is going through, as she cries out before him at his feet, he tells her a little story and calls her a Dog. I mean, this response is at best unsettling, isn't it? This is the guy, Jesus, who we've just been singing to. And yet now we encounter him calling people dogs. Are you not unsettled by that? Because I am. It is unsettling. I mean, what, what is this about? I mean, we understand Jesus being sharp with the Pharisees and the scribes. When we see that on a Sunday morning, we're thinking, this is great. He's Jesus. This is awesome. He goes toe-to-toe with scribes and Pharisees. It's appropriate. He should. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet when we see him before this desperate woman calling her a dog, you can't help but wonder, what is that all about? Why is he doing that? What is he trying to achieve in this moment? What is he trying to say? But obviously to understand this, we have to understand the background. Otherwise, we are going to be in a world of hurt. And in particular, we have to understand what a Jew is thinking about when they use the word dog. Because it was a common expression. And we have to get into their world and understand what they're talking about when they're thinking of dogs. See, dogs as pets in Jewish times were an absolute exception. 
There were no doggy parks, okay? There were no parks to play our cricket on and then doggy parks by the side. They didn't love dogs that much. That's quite a new thing if you study history. Not many people back then were thinking, oh, let's get a Labrador for the house. Won't that be nice? No one's doing that. It's a rare exception that a dog was a pet. It was possible, but it was very much the exception. Instead, dogs were known as scavengers. They were wild, and they were feral. And they would survive then by scavenging whatever food they could find in people's backyards, in streets, in marketplaces, and accordingly, they were classed as unclean because they could be eating anything. You know, I experienced this a little bit in the Philippines when I was there. You know, I've never seen so many dogs in my life, and they didn't appear to be pets. You know, they're just running, and, and I, don't, I don't really like dogs. I get a bit nervous of dogs. And so you get out the car, and you're like, whoa, where's the owner of this? And he's like, oh, there's no owner. They just live here. And I'm like, whoa, dog. I mean, there's just dogs everywhere. You think, if I'm going to get rabies. I'm going to go home. I'm just going to be seriously ill. There's just dogs everywhere, and they are just eating off the street whatever they can find. Well, that's what it was like in Jewish culture as well. These dogs would eat whatever they can find. They were wild. They were feral. They were scavengers. And because, therefore, they would eat whatever they could find, they were unclean. Unclean beasts. Unclean scavengers. Well, the Jews then associated dogs with uncleanness. And accordingly then, by way of insult, it was this association and designation that they gave to Gentiles too. It wasn't a nice thing to say. But nonetheless, it was deliberate to help them see, you're dogs, you're scavengers, you're unclean before the Lord. That's what you're all like. You're just unclean before him. You're you're dogs. Now, Jesus then, very importantly, does soften the word here by using the Greek word dog. There's two different Greek words. One is the one for household pet. One is the one for scavenger. He does soften it because he does use the word for household pet when he's calling her a dog, and not the word scavenger. And yet, it can still appear somewhat harsh. It can still appear somewhat rude and insulting. In response to her desperate plea, he tells her a parable and calls her a dog. And yet, my friends, I submit to you, he's not being harsh. His heart is not to be insulting nor rude. What he's doing in this moment is is seeking to lean in, look into her eyes, and tell her, in effect, it's not personal. It's just the truth. You are cut off before the Lord. You are unclean before the Lord. And in the way he's talking about it and emphasizing it with her, he's trying to help us see that this isn't where you stand He's not trying to push her out. He's trying to pull her in. He's trying to invite her and provoke her faith into him. You are a dog before the Lord. But in his wording, you realize he's trying to pull her in. He's trying to draw her close. And you know what is even more shocking than his statement? (laughs) Hands down, what is more shocking than Jesus' statement in this moment is the reality that this woman gets it. 
She understands exactly what he's trying to say. She agrees with him. She totally and utterly gets what she's saying. And so read a response in verse 28. It says, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Listen, her response is no less than remarkable. Because she gets it. Jesus' statement is shocking, but her response is remarkable. Because in effect, what she's saying is, I agree. Yes, Lord. It's true. And it's that that gives this moment a completely different look. Because it's that that gives this moment what it really is, the diamond in the crown. Namely, she is a compelling example of faith. A compelling example that should provoke us. A compelling example that should teach us. A compelling example that we should seek to imitate. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way. He says, For in this passage, Jesus held up the woman's faith so that the church down through the ages could see how beautiful her faith was. I believe he's right. This is inscribed in Scripture because God himself wants us to see how beautiful her faith was. He wants us to see this beautiful faith. And so let's take a moment now to examine this beautiful faith. Let's take a moment to examine this faith that pleases the Savior. Because it's when we do, I think, it's when we examine this beautiful faith that it begins to sparkle like a diamond before our eyes. Because what we see in this beautiful faith, this faith that pleases the Savior, this faith that is there to provoke us and teach us and cause us to imitate it, is a faith that revolves around two things. Humility and trust. That's what a beautiful faith is all about. It's what true faith is all about. Faith that exhibits humility and trust. And this woman has both in bucket loads. She's a humble lady. See, this woman recognizes her unworthiness. She gets it. I'm not worthy before you. See, Jesus in this parable rightly makes an appropriate distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He's acknowledging here the uniqueness of Israel and the privileges of Israel, and the appropriate order then for his ministry in the world. All the way through the Old Testament, we're taught that the gospel is to be proclaimed first to the Jews and second to the Gentiles. All the way through the Old Testament, that's the emphasis. The gospel must go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Paul then says it in Romans 1, that's exactly the way it should be. First to the Jews and then to the Greeks, meaning Gentiles. The gospel was always to come for the Jews. They were the first amongst us. And so the children, the people of Israel, as it says here, must be fed first. The food of Jesus Christ must go to the Jews first. It must go to Israel first. It just wouldn't be right to take the children's bread, the ministry of Jesus Christ, and throw it before the dogs. Throw it before the Gentiles. Because it must go to the Jews first. This is the way God has ordained it to be. Or the Son would come to the Jews. 
The Jews would get saved and then by his grace, they would begin to take the gospel out then to the Gentiles and to the nations all the way ultimately to us. But first things first. The bread must go to the children. It must go to those first around the table. And what's incredible is that this woman immediately and completely agrees. Yes, Lord. It's true. It should go to them first. We are not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. This woman is not insulted. She's not offended. She's not disturbed by the Savior's designation of her as a dog. She's not insulted or offended by that. She agrees. Before you, I am unclean. Before you, I deserve nothing. I'm not a child of God. I'm not a person of Israel. I'm not seated at your table. I'm nothing before you, Lord. Her faith exhibits humility. She's not there wagging a finger at the Lord saying, hey, listen, if you were really God, if you really loved me, then you would help me. If you really loved me, you wouldn't let these things happen in my life. That's not her tone at all. Her tone is one of humility. She is on her knees before the Lord saying, listen, you owe me nothing. You are the king and I am a Gentile. I'm not seated at your table. I'm nothing before you. I'm unworthy before you. You don't owe me anything. I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not a child. The first part of the faith aspect that Jesus so delights in is this beautiful humility. She gets it. She isn't worthy. She doesn't deserve anything. She is defiled. She is like the rest of us, totally unworthy before him. And yet what she also exhibits is a profound trust as this woman recognizes his abilities and character. And so she rightly seizes upon the word in verse 28, uh, sorry, in verse 27, when he says, let the children be fed first, she hears the word first. I get it. I'm not first. I don't deserve anything before you. I'm cut off before you. I'm unworthy. You don't owe me anything at all. And yet, Lord, I heard you say the word first. She rightly recognizes this as an invitation to faith, as a provocation to faith. And so she, in effect, says to him, Lord, it is true that I am not worthy. It is true that I deserve nothing from you. Before you, I am a gentle. I am unclean before you. And yet, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. And Lord, I know you. I've heard of you. I've heard of your compassion. I've heard of the way you heal people. I've heard the way you are with the sick, the way you look into people's eyes. I've heard the way you rebuke demons from people for their good. Lord, I've heard of your love and your patience and your mercy. Lord, I believe in you. I trust in you. And so, Lord, I know that in and of myself, you owe me nothing. I'm not worthy before you. You don't owe me anything. But, Lord, I know who you are. And I know your abilities. And I know your character. And so, Lord, even the dogs under the table, they eat crumbs. 
And so I trust you. What beautiful faith. And what a compelling example of faith she is. She gets it. She humbles herself before the Lord. She doesn't wag the finger at the Lord. How dare you pick them and not me? This is pathetic. Do you not know who I am? No, she's aware she's got nothing. She's got nothing in her hands to bring. Nothing to offer him. No impressive things to say. No deeds that she's done that she can try and bath him before him. She's aware she's got nothing. But she's aware he's got everything. And he's a God of mercy and power and compassion and patience and grace. And so, Lord, if it be your will, even the dogs like me under the table, maybe we could get the crumbs. What a compelling example of faith. And what a refreshing experience this must have been for the Savior. He's been walking around for two years by now with these disciples that don't seem to be getting anything. It's like they just don't seem to be grasping anything that he says. You know, he feeds the 5,000, they look on and go, oh yeah, that's good, yeah, but yeah. Okay, well, thanks for coming. They just don't seem to get it. They've got nothing going on. Every time he does something with them, they just, they just don't get it. He's just gone toe-to-toe with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's been telling them, it's not what you think. What defiles you isn't what goes in your mouth, it's your heart, you're cut off from me. What more do I need to do to show you that I am he? And yet he goes into Gentile country, stands in a Gentile home with a Gentile woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit and in a moment she bursts through the door, hits the knees and effectively says, you owe me nothing but I trust in you. It's beautiful. It is a wonderfully compelling example of faith and what a refreshing moment this must have been for the Saviour. And so he issues her with a pronouncement and a miracle. Point three, a pronouncement and miracle by Jesus. Verse 29. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon Now listen, there is no mention here of the tone of the Saviour's voice or the facial expressions of the Saviour and yet I think we can safely assume the Saviour is ecstatic with her. He is completely delighted with her and that's why he commends her faith. When it says there that, and he said to her for this statement, it's not just like, well, for this statement, here you go. It's like, for this statement, for what you've said, this is incredible. He's applauding her. He's commending her for the fact that she gets it. She's humble before him, yet she trusts in him. She believes that if it be his will, he could do anything in a moment. She is humble before him and she completely trusts him. And I think we can safely say he is delighted. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Our Lord had a very quick eye for spying faith. For our Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith. And watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it round and set it in other lights so that the various facets of this priceless diamond might each flash its brilliance and delight to his soul. How true it is. 
It has delighted his soul. He's overwhelmed with joy by this lady's faith. He is thrilled with this lady's faith. He is ecstatic by what he is seeing in her humility and trust. It has caught his gaze. Kent Hughes says, For there was surely a sparkle in his eye and a smile on his face. Well, surely there was. Surely at this moment there was a sparkle in the Saviour's eyes and a happy expression on his face because he is thrilled by what he's seeing. In her humility before him and her confidence in him, he is ecstatic. And so he commends her faith. Well, a few times we see that in Scripture, the Saviour commending somebody's faith. You often see him saying, oh, you have a little faith. But here he commends her faith. You get it. You come to me in humility and you trust me. You believe in me and you trust me. She completely gets it. So he commends her for her faith. And in grace, he grants her request. Not just with crumbs falling from the table. He heals a little girl. Credibly, he doesn't even have to leave the room. Such is the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't even leave the room. He says, hey, you head back. The demon's gone. Never encountered the daughter, never seen the daughter. He knows exactly who the daughter is, and he has just rebuked that demon without even opening his mouth, and that demon has left the daughter. That is the power of Jesus Christ. And what a compelling example of faith this woman brings. And so what are we to do with it? Why is it here? Why is Mark including this story for us 2,000 years on of this woman's compelling faith? Well, here's what I believe we're meant to do with it. Herein lies the reason why I believe this is here. I think we're meant to take this compelling example of faith and make it our own. It's here as a mirror to show us this is what faith looks like. This is what beautiful faith is. This is what faith that pleases the Savior actually looks like. Here. Copy it. Emulate it. Be compelled by it and imitate it. So my friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... Well, then I want to lean in on you for a moment. And I want to look you in the eye this morning to tell you the truth. That before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you too are a dog. Before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you too are unclean. Before the King Jesus Christ, you too are cut off from God the Father. See, in the beginning, God created us and made us. And he made us to find our identity and our purpose and our peace and joy in him. And yet mankind screwed up. Each and every one of us went our own way. Each and every one of us said, I don't want the creator, I want the created. I don't want to worship you, I want to worship this. I want to live for myself. I want God to, in effect, be me. I want it to be all about me. And we may not have vocalized that quite that way, but that's the way we've lived. 
We're called to worship the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind, our strength, but instead we just live for ourselves with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength. And because of that, we're a dog before him. We're unclean. We're cut off from him in our sin. And we're destined to die once and after that face judgment. And when we stand before him, the question in his mind is, are you clean or not? And in ourselves, we're unclean. There's nothing we can do. We're dogs before him. And yet God in his grace made a way for us to be declared clean. And he did that by sending his clean son to live a clean life and then die in our place as a dog. So that if we put our faith in him, just like this woman, a faith that gets down on our knees and says, Lord, I've got nothing. All I bring to this relationship is my dirt. All I bring to this in this moment is my uncleanness. And Lord, I know that you owe me nothing. And yet, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you are good. I believe you are God. I believe you are a God of mercy and grace. So Lord, I put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. You know, the Bible's clear that when we do that before the Lord, then in that moment, we will be saved. When we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, then we will be saved. We will be quite literally before the Lord made clean. Because his clean life gets transferred to our life and wraps around us and our dirt and uncleanliness goes to him on the cross. So if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I urge you, put your faith in him today. Flee from your sin and put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and you will be clean. You'll be forgiven. And you'll be redeemed to God the Father and you will know that heaven is your home and it will all be by his grace. Because grace is all we've got. You will never earn your way into heaven. You'll never do something where he goes, oh, excellent, yeah, good, I'll probably let you in. You're filthy before him. You're a dog. So put your faith in him and know life. If though you're here today as a believer... I simply want you to know this by way of conclusion. Your acceptance before the Lord is still exactly the same this day as it was on the day you got saved. Nothing's changed. The day that you got saved, you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you knew in that blink of an eye that you're forgiven of your sin, you're acceptable before him because it's not about you, it's about him. Sometimes the longer we're a Christian, the more we're tempted to smuggle in our works thinking there's things we need to add. There is nothing you need to add. Your acceptance before the Lord is still the same this day as it was the day you got saved. When you stand before the Lord singing his praises, believing that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and worthy of being praised, the only reason why you can do that is not because of your nice singing. It's because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that's what makes you acceptable before him as you sing. And as you kneel before him in your darkest times and in your most difficult times, crying out to him for grace, 
In that moment too, the thing that makes you acceptable before him is not your cry. It's his grace. It's always his grace. Always will be his grace. So never move on from the reality that as Christians, nothing in our hands we bring. Nothing. Simply to the cross we cling. And as Mr. Dixon says, then may we take all our good deeds and all our bad deeds, cast them in a heap before the Lord and flee from both. And in Jesus Christ alone, by his grace, may we have a sweet peace. You know, this woman offers us a compelling example of faith. A faith that's humble, a faith that realizes who she is, and a faith that's trusting, believing, whatever be your will, Lord, I trust you. You are good, you are God, I trust you. What a compelling example. And may it be one that we emulate too. May her faith be our story. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for including in your word the story of this woman so that we may see ourselves, our unworthiness before you, and yet the realities of all who you are before us. Lord, you saved us by your incredible grace. Even when we were dogs before you and dead in our transgressions and sins, you cleansed us. You came after us when we were far from you. And all we brought to our salvation was our sin and the nails that would drive you into the cross. Oh Lord, would you teach us then and humble us then, Lord, to take all our good deeds and all our bad and fling them before you and instead flee to the cross alone, understanding that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are gain acceptance before you. Lord, would we never move on from the cross, only ever grow into a deeper understanding of the cross. And would we always then, Lord, be amazed by your grace? Because that's what it's all about. From life's first cry to final breath, it's all by your grace. Amen.